Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director at the Mitchell Institute. Here at the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now, back in February, we were honored to host Lieutenant General Eric Kenny, the commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And this is an important conversation because, as we all know, the United States doesn't engage around the world alone. I mean, mission success demands on partners and allies, and fewer as important as Canada. So given our shared location on the North American continent, we've got an incredibly aligned set of security interests. So today, we're going to continue this conversation, but through a different lens, one focused specifically on space power. We're pleased to introduce Brigadier General Mike Adamson, Commander of 3 Canadian Space Division, or 3CSD for short, Brigadier General Chris McKenna, Director General, Air and Space Force Development, and Brigadier General Kyle Paul, Deputy Commanding General, Transformation of the Space Force's Space Operations Command. So bottom line, these are the RCAF leaders when it comes to space power. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for making the time to join us today. Hey, thank you very much. It's Chris McCann. Thanks very much for uh, the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, Mike Adamson here with you as well. Uh, we really welcome the opportunity to talk to our allies and our fellow uh, defense specialists and talk about what Canada is doing in the space domains. Thanks for the opportunity. And Kyle Paul, last but not least, happy to give you a perspective of being a Canadian embedded within the United States Space Force. I'd also like to introduce Tim Ryan. He's a senior fellow at our Mitchell Institute Space Power Center of Excellence. And Tim, always great to have you with us. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. And gentlemen, thanks so much for uh, attending. I'd like to kick this off by throwing a question to all of you to weigh in. In big picture, how does Canada see its national security interests in space? I mean, what are your objectives? How do your capabilities align with these goals? Could you fill us in on, on those thoughts? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll go first from the uh, Canadian Space Division perspective. I think we see our, our interests and our awareness of national security interests is really an evolution at the moment. Not unlike many of our allies, we've stood up an independent organization within our, our military to address those issues. And what we're doing is identifying where we stand, how we can best be interoperable, incredible, um, and complementary to allied efforts. Uh, and then the other piece, of course, is an educational component as well in defining what those national security interests are in space. I think we have a growing understanding of the criticality of space from a defense perspective and indeed societally. Uh, and what we're now trying to do is codify that and be able to create those underpinning foundational documents, such as a strategy, for instance, that will help sort of define as we go forward. I can jump in next. It's Chris McKenna here on the force development side. I mean, I, I would say the space capabilities that we have invested in the past and that we are investing in going forward are, are fundamental to the defense of this country and this continent and fundamental to the prosperity of this country and to the, that of our allies. And so we take uh, the responsibility to develop the capabilities that we need to defend and protect Canadian and allied interests extremely seriously. I certainly welcome this conversation and, uh, and know that you have an ally that is working very hard to develop capability that is uh, interoperable with the U.S. and other allies in the defense of our, of our shared continent. And to close it out, this is uh, General Paul from Space Force. I, I would say that as we look at it south of the border, the reality is Canada acknowledges it cannot go it alone, but so is the U.S. And so we know that we need to partner with our allies in order to be able to work together and build out that resiliency to create that strategic deterrence going forward. General, thanks. That's a great rundown. Now to set the stage for our listeners, could you just walk us through how does space power nest within the Royal Canadian Air Force? I mean, how do each of your individual commands fit within that architecture? I'll, uh, I'll start off with that from the uh, three Canadian Space Division perspective, because I tend to be the belly button that gets poked every time somebody talks about space, and notwithstanding the fact that some of our space equities are really spread across the entire defense enterprise. What we've got within the RCAF uh, doctrinally are divisions. We have the Air Divisions, one Canadian Air Division, two Canadian Air Division, and then we've recently stood up three Canadian Space Division. Subordinate to that, and within the division, we have a, a space wing, uh, and then subordinate to that, a couple of squadrons, an operational support squadron, and then a 
Space Operations Squadron in which we've got our Kansbacher Canadian Space Operations Center. So from a organizational standpoint, that's sort of what we look at. We're nested within the Air Force simply because uh, a number of years ago, the Chief of Defense Staff decided that the Air Force was the best place to put a nascent space organization for cultivation and evolution of that power. But really, we are a joint organization. You know, within our lines, I have personnel from Army, Air Force, Navy, and Special Ops uh, who are doing any number of jobs. So while we are within the RCAF, really, we are a Canadian Armed Forces joint space capability and enterprise that are, you know, designed to serve all of the joint warfighters and certainly uh, align our activities with our allies. What we have done is broken out some of those smaller um, smaller pieces. I'm really responsible for operations and supporting our warfighters, and I'll hand over to uh, Chris McKenna to talk about how force development fits in that. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So Chris McKenna here. So I have in my title, Air and Space Force Development. So I have both sides of the equation, and there's really two key force developers in the RCF. One is our fire capability office that actually encompasses now all the NORAD modernization efforts in addition to the fighters, fighter weapons, fighter ranges, et cetera. On my side, I do everything else that flies in addition to space. So I have a team that is solely focused on force development in the space domain. And we, much like Mike, people move between space division and my team freely in the sense that you need operators to advocate and vice versa, you need force developers to go and live the operational experience. Our job is to set all the requirements and to deal with our central agencies and our procurement arms to make sure that we are uh, getting after force developing the capabilities required. I see Mike very much as my customer. So in the sense, he's a very needy customer. He's constantly criticizing things that I'm doing, which I think is a very healthy tension that we have uh, built between our two teams in the sense that uh, if he isn't happy, my commander's not going to be happy. And certainly the force development efforts we lead from within the RCF have hand Canadian Armed Forces outcomes in the sense that we are a joint force development team that produces effects for Army, uh, Navy, and Special Operations. So my team nests inside the commander of the RCF staff, uh, and I work through the deputy commander to my, uh, to my commander, uh, and we are talking about space and space power and space force development, I would say, on a daily basis. And here in uh, Space Operations Command, we're the operational commander of the United States Space Force, so we're focused on the fight tonight. Uh, our guardians are executing the mission 24-7 and right beside our allies and partners, and we're fully integrated into that execution of that mission. And it's through the mission that we gain the experience, develop our training, our techniques, our procedures, and then look at identifying opportunities for future development going forward. Now, gentlemen, I appreciate that. So one of the biggest factors impacting U.S. space operations is the reality that our adversaries are holding our assets on orbit at risk. And we all know the story here. We hit it a lot on this podcast. But, you know, bottom line, this is a seismic development given our past assumptions of space as a peaceful operating domain. And that's obviously not the case anymore. How is the Royal Canadian Air Force responding to this and making decisions accordingly? Yeah, that's a great question. And from a space division perspective, we are keenly aware of what it is our adversaries are doing and developing in order to impact our assured access to the domain, our ability to be able to leverage it, uh, whether we're using space vehicles uh, that are on orbit in order to facilitate um, you know, what we're doing in terms of intelligence gathering, or whether we're using the domain as a transport layer in order to get satellite communications and whatnot uh, from one part of the globe to the other. It's impacting our decision-making insofar as, you know, a lot of what we've been doing over the last little while is an educational effort to increase the space-mindedness of the Canadian Armed Forces writ large so that they understand, you know, just how much your average uh, Army Air Force or, uh, or Naval combatant is reliant on those space effects and enablers and educating them then on the likelihood that they're going to encounter degraded or denied uh, situations if they uh, enter into a theater of operations with our adversaries' capabilities being brought to bear. So understanding that, I think, is the first issue. And then uh, from a space division perspective, one of the things we're doing is helping our joint force work through some of those challenges. Uh, we've recently stood up an aggressor unit that's got the ability to go out and conduct some fairly localized jamming so that those warfighters you know, better understand where they're perhaps uh, have got vulnerabilities uh, and then how to work through that, how to fight through some of that degradation or denial of service and, and come up with alternate tactics and, and procedures to be able to uh, be resilient in the face of all of that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's impacting all of what we're doing, like I said, across the cap, not just uh, within the RCAF. And it's been interesting 
as we've stood up the division, it really has represented an operationalization of space. People people are viewing it a little bit differently. The fact that we've seen the uh, the merits of having a standalone organization that are doing that. So when we're going into operations planning with our operational uh, commanders, combatant commanders, it used to be we had to sort of fight our way into the uh, into the planning room. Now they don't start their meetings unless they make sure that space is there and present. Uh, they understand the criticality of, of these effects and neighbors and what it can do for them and what it can do against them. So that's sort of where we're going forward from my perspective. Yeah, I'll follow that up. It's Chris McKenna on the first element side again. And, uh, you know, I would say, so starting in about 2017, there was a migration in Canada to move from what we called capability-based planning uh, to what we're calling now concept of threat and form planning. And so linking threat to the capability you're investing in was not always as obviously done in Canada. And I, I believe there's been a tremendous shift over the last number of years to a more threat informed approach in the room with Mike as he briefs our senior leadership on space threat, along with our intelligence partners. And it's interesting to watch, you know, the light bulbs come on in terms of what is out there, what is happening and translating that into what the space investment needs to be as a nation. And so first and foremost, as my team looks to design um, capability, it's the resiliency piece. And Mike and I have a tension where he's always looking for something that allows him that resiliency as the Joint Force Space Component Commander. And, you know, and parking all of your assets or all of your capability in a single, say, two-ball HEO capability, as opposed to a proliferated LEO capability, there's certainly a tension that is going on right now is, the environment is changing so fast in terms of what, uh, what's out there and how much proliferation is going on, but also in terms of you know, what threat environment are we inserting these platforms into and how do we need to force develop to ensure that the survivability is there for what we put into, into orbit. I would just look at it from a U.S. context, too, that it wasn't really until 2018 that space was initially even referred to as a warfighting domain. So there's a huge culture shift, and you know, look at where we are now to where we were say only five years ago, and uh, we've leaps and bounds in terms of the cooperation and looking to posture ourselves to align ourselves with those allies to be able to fight in a congested and contested environment. So in order to achieve that strategic endurance, I agree we need that full complement of capabilities across the entire spectrum with those willing nations that are able to contribute. Gentlemen, thanks. That's a, a great discussion on threats. And, and that brings us to kind of an interesting set of issues that are tied to deterrence in space. So how would you define the RCAF objectives in this realm? What does it mean when, when it comes to effectively securing your desired mission effects, given this threat environment? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we should start by saying that we're not going to conduct space operations or deterrence of the adversary unilaterally. Canada's, you know, not big enough to be able to, to undertake that. I don't think any one nation has the ability to do that. So Chris mentioned earlier, you know, allied by design is certainly a theme that pervades a lot of what we do. And that means not just interoperability, but, you know, a shared, I think, addressing of those issues or concepts. And, you know, one of the things that I've been referencing a lot lately when I'm speaking to folks is borrowing unapologetically from General Saltzman when he talks about his enduring competition theory as it pertains to deterrence. And there's three main tenets of that. First is, is to avoid surprise. You want to make sure you remain aware of what's going on on orbit, uh, what our adversaries are up to. And from a Canadian perspective, obviously, we want to contribute to that in whatever way we can with capability both that we currently have and then and Chris can speak to uh, things that are coming down the pipe in the space domain awareness piece. The second tenet is to deny first mover advantage. I think there's a number of ways of doing that. You want to dissuade uh, the adversary from thinking they've got the upper hand and they can move forward confidently that they're going to be able to uh, emerge victorious from any kind of a conflict. And that deterrence takes its form in many different ways. Chris had made mention of resilience in terms of distributed architectures and those kinds of things. The third tenet is responsible counter space, you know, and that's something that we've we don't have at the moment, but it's a capability that we're looking to get into going forward to sort of finish off that third leg of the stool, if you will, from a capabilities perspective. And I think if we align those efforts and they are complementary to what the U.S. is doing, to what our other allies are doing as well, then we collectively are achieving deterrence against a common adversary as well. I'm sure Chris has got more to share on that. Yeah, I, I'll pick up from where Mike left off there. And, and certainly from our point of view, I think designing capabilities as systems of systems. So if you look at the NORAD modernization rubric for Canada, there's an enormous amount of investment that was announced uh, just over a year ago that's now moving through the procurement mill in Canada. And much of that uh, dollar value investment actually is anchored against the space domain, which was great to see a big uplift to extend projects and some new ones. 
So from my point of view, it's ensuring an aligned national capability development view. So not just force developing only for the military, but understand there's other security and intelligence partners, you know, within your country that need to align to what you're doing. And then making sure uh, that the things you do put in orbit can at least be survivable and are credible and actually contribute to systems view of the defense of this continent. And obviously uh, conducting expeditionary operations as a, as a nation or as a coalition. So from our point of view, there's a number of projects in which we have, uh, we've not look, just looked at interoperability, but interchangeability. You know, we are part of the AHF constellation. We're part of the, w, the Wideband Global SACOM WGS constellation. Recently uh, become part of the MUAS constellation and, and reworking all of our comms architecture to be in that protected mill uh, world with MUAS as our anchor point and our two tangents goes on all of our aircraft. There's a number of ways I think you can get after this, and it's a layering, and it's ensuring that you are allied by design, and in many cases, you are interchangeable with our closest ally being the U.S. and uh, with our five wise and NATO partners. And from uh, from my perspective here, I would look at it as uh, it's pretty clear that space is a team sport, and deterrence can only be achieved in partnership with our allies. So it is truly a global domain with the on-orbit, the link, the ground segments. You need to ensure that you have global access to space, but... Also with my hat is a DCG transformation. I look at it, it's not just the shiny toys that are out there that contribute to that deterrence factor. Uh, we're also looking at how can we be more resilient in terms of agility, leveraging automation, accelerating our decision loops, uh, because space is such a dom dynamic domain and there's tons of data that is out there that we need to consider. Uh, we need to ensure that we leverage technology as much as possible. And to that end, partnerships with academia and encouraging the youth of the nation to be uh, interested in science, technology, engineering, and mathematic disciplines at school. That's the real way in going forward where we're going to build that capacity. And General Paul, I'd like to follow up with you. You know, as you mentioned, you're currently serving at Space Operations Command. And that assignment, it says a lot about the nature of the relationship between our two countries. And could you please talk to us about how U.S. Space Force, Space Command, and the Royal Canadian Air Force in general collaborate? Absolutely. And I, I agree. I think the fact that the United States Space Force has accepted to put a Canadian general officer in their operational uh, command headquarters speaks volumes to the strength of our partnership and our relationship with the U.S. But in terms of collaboration, I, I think it really starts with the integration of RCF members into the operational deltas within Space Operations Command. Our personnel are sitting shoulder to shoulder with our U.S. and allied counterparts executing the mission on a daily basis. And our longstanding history of collaboration, especially as we look at the framework within NORAD, serves kind of as a cornerstone in establishing our seamless coordination and cooperation across the domain. I also have to look at what, you know, a, a little bit outside my purview within transformation, but the work that Space Command at the Combat Command is doing to sign out those enhanced space cooperation MOUs, which Canada signed back in December of 22 to look as a framework to for deepen cooperation between each of our allied partners. And I think that's really gonna bear fruit in the near future. And then of course, from a Canadian perspective, uh, we can continue to contribute in our uh, space situational awareness and been a reliable partner in that domain since 2013. So one area where I think we need to do better in terms of space force or we're looking to expand is in the realm of innovation. And how can we partner with other nations that are out there uh, in the areas of software development and share resources to ensure that we have uh, data sharing agreements, that we have backbones and the IT infrastructure out there to ensure that we can fight together going forward. Uh, sir, I appreciate that. And, you know, what about the broader range of your allied partnerships when it comes to space power? On that front, I would say the reality is uh, space is a global domain. I think we'll definitely continue to have the preferred partnerships, such as the 5i community. But given the, given the global nature and the recognition, the importance in space, I think those partnerships on a global scale are expanding. And they're expanding because we need to fill in any gaps that may exist and build out that resiliency, just like uh, Chris and Mike have been mentioning that we're looking at. I would say there's an increased willingness on the part of Space Force and the U.S. writ large. As I look at, you know, the guys have mentioned a couple times, Allied by Design. Well, that that's a study that was conducted internally to look at what are the barriers for increased cooperation and collaboration going forward in the space domain. And RAND conducted that study, and it should be coming out in the very near future. 
But they, they cast a wide net to be able to look at not only allies, but all the combatant commands to interview uh, Space Force experts to identify what are those impediments uh, to future progress. And I can tell you internally to Space Operations Command, we're taking a deliberate look at uh, initially looking at our security classification guides. Uh, why are we at, why am I asked to leave a meeting? Why can't we release that information and challenging the status quo that may have existed over the past 20 years. So I think with initiatives like that, uh, that broader range of space collaboration is going to, only going to expand for the future. Great, thanks so much, General Paul. This one will be back for all of you. Clearly both the United States and Canada are focused on, as General Saltzman says, partnering to win, or as you all have introduced, allied by design. So could you please walk us through some of the specifics when it comes to allied and partner space power missions? In particular, when it comes to interoperability, protocols, equipment equity, things like that, how do you see it from your seat? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think Canada, um, amongst all the other nations that are sort of within our alliance framework, benefits from the fact that we've got decades of experience being uh, interoperable and, and working together um, on things like NORAD, for instance. You know, we've got a long history to draw upon there which I think facilitates a lot of what we're doing in space because NORAD had a lot of the original space mission. So we were set up for a certain amount of ability to communicate amongst our two nations, uh, to be able to talk back and forth, to sort of share some of the protocols and, and, um, and, and mission sets that are obviously expanding as we move forward. It, it is definitely a challenge. We've got a couple of organizations that we work within that are trying to sort of wrap their arms around some of these challenges. There are speed bumps to progress, if you will. Combined Space Operations is the first one. It's been around for a number of years. I think it has achieved amongst the Five Eyes plus France and Germany, a level of, of policy interoperability. Uh, a lot of great discussions that come out of that group, talking about messaging against nefarious activities on the part of adversaries, whether it be ASAT testing or robotic arms or what have you. CISPO, I think, uh, has had some success in that regard. But what we've realized is there's still some challenges facing us in achieving a certain level of interoperability in terms of mission systems, networks being able to work with each other, to be able to uh, communicate uh, back and forth. And so we're working through right now an evolution of the U.S. Operational Olympic Defender, of which at the moment there are sort of four key partners, uh, Canada being one of them. And we're working through a bit of a mission analysis at the moment that is going to understand not just what the mission sets are going to be, but get after some of those basic, you know, what are the network requirements that we need in order to be able to establish interoperability? How are we going to share information? How are we going to perhaps federate capabilities such that if one nation's space operations center is down uh, for lack of power or what have you, that another nation can, can pick up that load and be able to continue the mission on behalf of, of everyone else? Um, and so those things are actually what we're, we're working through now and have been working through quite heavily over the last seven or eight months, actually. We're in the midst of that with a do out back to our various principles to sort of talk about how we're going to get after this, which is uh, reflected a little bit um, in how we're going to plug into the evolving U.S. space chain of command, operations chain of command that, uh, that maybe uh, Kyle might want to uh, speak to a little bit later as well. But that's what we're dealing with at the moment. I could jump in there as well, Mike, and uh, maybe offer my view on this. So one is, I think, as we force develop capabilities, you cannot do it in national isolation. It's got to be an aligned view with the allies in our context because of the continent and the defense of the continent and our agreement. It really needs to be aligned to continental defense uh, and being an added value partner uh, to the U.S. and providing capabilities that are complementary and additive uh, to the U.S. enterprises. I think Mike and, and Carla pointed out, no one nation, including the U.S., can do it all. So we certainly want to be a net contributor you know, I think about our surveillance of space capability, Sapphire, that's been up since 13, continues to give us good data today and allows us to be a contributor to the uh, space surveillance network for the U.S. You know, in return, we obviously get the catalog and we are able to do a lot of things that maybe other partners would be challenged to. But it's a, it's a good example of, of contributing. Uh, I think as you look and look forward for us, you know, we look at the NORAD modernization work that's been funded. Uh, one of those investments is the Enhanced Secure Communications Polar that is to say, protected mill SATCOM from 65 to 90. When our fighters do intercepts at 70, 73 degrees north, it's awfully quiet. There's not a lot of SATCOM uh, available unless you're rebrowing through tankers or ISR aircraft. And uh, that is certainly a niche that Canada wishes to fill with that project so we can have SATCOM that would be not just for Canada, but for the U.S. and for our allies. And then having domain awareness from space-based systems that allow us to protect the continent writ large 
and be able to work within the Nord Agreement to hand off targets to our U.S. allies. So I think there's a lot to be said there in making sure that we are putting things into orbit, given the every 15 to 20 year sort of cycle of investment, that, that one lasts that long at least, and two is a uh, net additive to the equation. And I, I would say I would agree with Mike, you know, there's been a, a renewed focus on ensuring that collaboration can actually be executed across the community. Um, and the deliberate efforts under OOD or uh, within CISPO to ensure that we can design by a, a, an, an actual foundational architecture where we can share that information, where we can eventually federate the mission uh, because it's an absolute requirement. As we look at the domain and how congested and contested it is becoming, just this past week, I got some new figures where, you know, we have over 44,000 objects right now that are being tracked in space with 8,600 of those being actual spacecraft. And already this year, we've had 109 space launches. And that's just phenomenal. If you were to go back, you know, uh, just back to 2020, that's a 40% increase in the number of objects that we're currently tracking. So if we don't design an architecture where we can federate the mission, build in that resiliency, and Canada will be a key partner and contributor to that going forward, that's the only way that we're actually going to achieve that strategic deterrence. Uh, gentlemen, I want to build off of that conversation. It's really interesting. You know, where do you see these allied space power partnerships going in five, 10 years? And you know, what are your markers for measuring success? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the markers for success at the moment are evolving. I'm not sure that we have a, a full understanding of perhaps what the end state is going to be. But back to my comments earlier, we know that what we need to achieve is that level of interoperability, perhaps a level of, of federated capabilities such that we are able to backstop each other in terms of the allies, the number of allies. You know, at the moment, OOD, Olympic Defender, consists of four nations, the possibility that that expands uh, to include other like-minded nations so that the breadth and width and, and capability of the alliance is more significant. But I think, you know, this, the metric for success is going to be um, an understanding amongst those partner nations that we need to move forward collaboratively, cohesively, and, and complementarily. We don't need to be putting up constellation for position nav timing. We don't need another GPS constellation. That's been covered. What we do need to do is bring other capabilities to bear um, that fill a requirement or potentially, as Chris had mentioned, fill a, a niche capability such as uh, Arctic Polar Comms that might be something that Canada can certainly concentrate on because of, it obviously meets a, a larger requirement than just our domestic and sovereign requirements. I think as we go forward, the markers for or how we're achieving that um, are going to be are going to be moved. Um, it's better now than it was three years ago. And I hope that three years from now, we are increasingly uh, you know, more interoperable and more complementary in our, in our efforts. The other thing I think we need to look at is the exchange of personnel, you know, and, and Brigadier General Paul is a perfect example of that. But we're seeing that across the entire U.S. space enterprise within Space Command and Space Force, the presence of uh, allied liaison officers, exchange officers, um, and and it, it works with us in the U.S. or the U.K. in the U.S. or Australia in the U.S., but then equally, you know, amongst, say, a Canada-U.K. exchange or something along those lines is also going to bring more richness to the conversation to the uh, development of those capabilities because we do need to work closely, not just with the U.S., but with those other allies that are participating in that coalition. Hey, Mike, I'll build on that a bit. I mean, I think uh, from my point of view, we do not host a delegation here from, a, from an allied air force that does not have a discussion about Space Force development. I mean, the classification levels will vary depending on uh, what that partner can and can't talk about. Uh, but certainly the preeminence of Space Force development and space capability investment and the need to share the burden uh, given the expense and the short-lived lifespans of some of these things you put into, into orbit drives us down a collaborative path. So I think there's a bit of a journey of discovery here as we determine what we need to own, what we need to collaborate on, and what we need to access as allies. And I think looking at even non-traditional allies, you think about some of the Arctic nations that are in NATO, and there's certainly some shared requirements with respect to Polar SATCOM as an example, with countries like Norway that we need to obviously have some discussions about. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities, uh, and we need to continue the conversation as if and as we can when we engage with each other. I would agree with everything you guys said. And uh, I think down here, really, we, we're on a precipice. And, you know, Space Force has only been in existence for roughly three or four years, three and a half years. 
as we look at it, we need to celebrate our small wins that we're getting because in the past, we might not have had any of those wins. So we need to really celebrate those and elevate the awareness about where we're going. The more the joint force understands space, uh, they can be a champion on our behalf as well. And that's, that's true within the U.S. context. So I think we're all headed in the right direction. The fact that the discussions are actually occurring is proof that we're committed to moving this forward. And in the next five to 10 years, even not just within the military domain, but as I look at the commercial domain and the ability to leverage maybe some of those commercial dual use technologies that are out there, it's really gonna bear fruit and build out that resiliency and expand space to an area that really we have no idea how far it can go. Great, thank you so much for that. Up to this point, we have focused the discussion on allied partnerships. I'd like to pivot and see how it is from your RCAF partners within the Canadian joint military partners, the Army and the Navy. How do they view space power and what are some of their top asks to you? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. And it's been, I wouldn't say the bane of my existence, but it's been a significant amount of my effort over the last few years in this job is to get out there and talk to my colleagues across the Joint Force Army and Navy uh, and, and Special Ops Forces uh, for that matter. And to their credit, the soft folks of actually the soft community has been extremely welcoming of any information and education that we can provide them. Soft is, is always a smaller organization, a little more agile in terms of their ability to be able to uh, react and, and change up what they're doing. So really good relationship with them. But you know, going out and talking to the Army and the Navy and the Air Force, frankly, has been really interesting because, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, I think space was a, a bit of a novelty. It's like, Isn't that cute? They're talking about space, you know, but it doesn't really bother me. I'm more concerned with, you know, my maritime domain or my land domain. Over the last few years, you know, through this education effort, increasing the space-mindedness of the joint force, we've been able to highlight to uh, to all of those folks um, just how reliant they are. I don't think they fully understood um, up until recently just how much of the equipment that they turn on on a daily basis either, you know, immediately goes out for a GPS timing signal or relies on that for a targeting solution or requires some kind of, you know, SANTCOM bandwidth, whether it be protected or otherwise, in order to conduct command and control. And they've been having these, these aha moments. And the, the proof of that is the fact that we've been going out and, and talking to those forces, but now what we're finding is they're contacting us and they're going, hey, listen, we're really concerned that perhaps we need to better understand all of these, uh, these aspects. So we go out and we talk to the tactical units, we talk to the strategic leadership of those, uh, of those various forces uh, to sort of highlight, you know, what the adversaries are doing what mission systems may be at risk and educate them on, on how they can then go ahead and try and mitigate. And I mentioned a little bit earlier in, the, in, the, uh, in this podcast, things like, for instance, an aggressor squadron, the ability to go out and clearly demonstrate to some of those forces, you know, this is what your scope looks like if you don't have a GPS signal to give you uh, all the sort of the position and timing information that you're reliant on for your tactical picture. It's been, uh, it's been really interesting to sort of watch their eyes sort of go big as pie plates as they realize just how much of what they're doing is reliant on space effects and enablers. And to that end, you know, the top ask to your question, uh, it's, it's been education, it's been um, to get assistance on how to develop their own training programs, how to include space in the planning of exercises so that they can realistically replicate, uh, whether it be in real life or in theory, um, what it is they might be encountering on the, uh, in the various operation theaters. Yeah, it, it's been a great sort of journey and one that I think uh, we can chalk up as, as a huge success from our perspective. Hey, I might just jump in as well here, and I could talk about the Navy and the Army because, they, in the sense that they have uh, different contexts. Um, so the Navy is really pulled in three directions. You know, the Arctic is thawing; if climate change is occurring, and you see a lot more activity in the Northwest Passage. And there's certainly an Arctic security context and a continental defense context to the Arctic Archipelago, and our obviously our responsibilities to assert sovereignty and to defend the continent. And so the Navy is being drawn into the Arctic in ways that they had previously not been. They have recently fielded a fleet of ships called the Arctic Offshore Patrol Ship, which is now conducting Northwest Passage passages on a more routine basis. And they obviously have polar SATCOM requirements and domain awareness requirements. We have Radar Sat Constellation Mission up, which obviously provides you know, domain awareness, maritime domain awareness, specifically on our coast and in the Arctic. But it is heavily subscribed by all uh, government departments and not just uh, security and intelligence and defense. And so the follow-on to that is a Defense Enhanced Surveillance of Space project, which is ideally going to be a, a defense-only, security and defense-only project that will allow us to, to do domain awareness in more places than just the Arctic, obviously, but uh, with that focus. 
The Navy is also drawn quite heavily into the Indo-Pacific as a result of the recently released Indo-Pacific strategy, and they find themselves there far more often conducting Taiwan Strait passages with U.S. Navy counterparts and with allies, and they are very active in the region. And as a result, they have very specific demands from a domain awareness targeting point of view and a, and a comms point of view. And they are also drawn equally into the European theater with our NATO obligations. And so from an Article 5 point of view and the naval obligations into standing, uh, standing naval task groups in the European theater, so they are drawn there as well. And so they obviously all have different and unique demands on the space layer um, that we need to try and service as we force develop. The Army is really quite focused, our Army, because of the Enhanced Forward Presence battle group that has been in Latvia as part of uh, the Enhanced Forward Presence by NATO since Russia's in- invasion of Ukraine, and quite honestly, as a deterrent prior to that, has been uplifted to a brigade size since our Army is really deepening their hold up there in Latvia, and they have very specific requirements from the space layer linked to command and control, comms, domain awareness. And they are learning now, they're going to have to learn, I think, a bit more even in the future in, in the denied environment and working uh, comms denied and P&T denied environment. And so all of that pushes the force development enterprise to its edges to make sure that we can get all of these, these folks on, uh, on board our projects. A, gr- a great example from my point of view is the MIWAS constellation that we've invested in under, it's a project called Tactical Air Band SATCOM Geosynchronous. And jumping into that, all the terminals for the Army switch over into a MIWAS compliant terminal. Same with the Navy and the Air Force is all in on our 210 Gen 6s for all of our fleets. So as a result of that, there's a great level of commonality of, of comms architecture across the joint force, which really helps. I'll just leave it at that, maybe for, uh, for KP to jump in. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say that the, you know, as Mike mentioned, elevating the space-mindedness across the joint environment, that's not just limited to Canada. That's, uh, that's also a, a challenge here in the United States. So we need to look at it from that perspective as well in terms of how do we integrate in our joint exercises to elevate that awareness. Even the real world events like Ukraine have actually assisted us with that. And as a result, you, we've seen how space planning is now being thought of upfront as you're looking at that joint operational planning environment. And in Space Force, we're looking to establish, and we already have in, in a couple, about three combatant commands, space components. Just like we have traditionally an air component, a Navy component, a land component within each of those combatant commands, well, now we're looking to build out those space components, and I think that speaks to the importance of the domain. So I, I think we're all moving in the right direction. I think we're all trying to struggle with that problem of how do we integrate space effects into that joint environment, but progress is definitely being made. General Adamson, you touched upon it earlier, but I'd like to dig a bit deeper for our listeners. And you know, according to your command's mission summary, three Canadian Space Division focuses on delivering space domain awareness, space-based support of military operations both at home and abroad, defending and protecting military space capabilities, including with allies and partners, and other space capabilities and objectives tied to Canada's defense policy. Can you walk us through what those focus areas mean in operational terms? Yeah, certainly. From a focus area perspective operationally, what we're concentrating on um, are some, you know, some key capabilities that Canada has, you know, current and are looking to um, develop future capabilities to sort of replace those ones, you know. And if we look at all the different effects that space brings to uh, the warfighter, you look at it as a large menu, if you will. Uh, there's some things that we're doing domestically or sovereignly from a Canadian perspective and other things that we rely certainly quite heavily on our allies for. So, you know, General McKenna has made reference to it a little bit already, but from a force development or capability development standpoint, we really have three gusting four main lines of effort, you know, space domain awareness, currently the Sapphire satellite that's been up there for a number of years with a follow-on project in order to uh, have both uh, ground-based and on-orbit capability to continue to contribute to space domain awareness. We've got a satellite communications project that's going to try and just that gap above 65 North in order to provide, you know, secure Arctic comms for ourselves and our allies, anyone that might be operating up there. And then the Earth observation piece that uh, Chris obviously just talked about a little bit as well, which is um, currently we're we're working with the Canadian Space Agency as a partner with RadarSat Constellation Mission, which is a three-ball constellation, a synthetic aperture radar, which does a great job in infusing that information with the automated identification system for shipping to create a really fulsome maritime domain awareness picture. And, and we're those are the sort of the three 
efforts that we're looking at that will continue capabilities that we currently have. A fourth line of effort we're recognizing that uh, we need to be involved in as well as is space control. And critical to all of that is we've got the supporting policy from the government of Canada through a defend and protect mandate to be able to get into all of those areas and others as we may sort of see uh, the requirement evolving going forward. But those are the things that we do. You know, the other thing that it means in terms of operations for us is is providing the other support of capabilities that we don't own ourselves, but are reliant on. GPS is a perfect example. We don't have our own PNT constellation. Most of our allies don't. Obviously, we rely very heavily on U.S. systems from that regard. Overhead persistent infrared, some missile warning capabilities, and a number of other capabilities that we access through space support requests. So if we have folks, Canadian forces that are operating a particular port of the world. We'll work very closely with Space Command and the submission of space support requests to ensure that we have access to some of those other capabilities that we might not be able to do ourselves. I liken it to a, you know, showing up at a potluck dinner. We show up at the front door and we've got our apple pie in our hands and the door opens and the U.S. is there. Hey, come on in, you know, help yourself to some turkey and some stuffing. We've got our apple pie and we want to make sure that we continue to contribute to that sort of global goodness, if you will, so that we're able to leverage those things because our warfighters are becoming increasingly dependent on access to all of that information in order to be able to conduct their own missions. Great. Thanks so much, sir. General McKenna, you are focused on what I would argue is the absolute key aspect of air and space power and that is the people. In your role leading RCAF's Air and Space Force Development, can you talk about what's, what are some of your top priorities, especially when it comes to building out that space power talent? Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, Mike has the mandate in his operational support squadron to do the training and education piece, so I do actually rely quite heavily on Mike to help my team force generate to be ready to do their jobs. We've leveraged um, significant support from the U.S. and Space 100, 200, and 300 courses, and I've sent many of my team and my senior leaders down on those courses, and they come back much better than they left in the sense that they have a really uh, robust policy view and a good technical understanding of what's going on. No, I think our challenge is to keep people at the technological edge and understand what the opportunities are with industry and working closer with industry in every possible way. So my team floods the zone. We are all over the world all the time at conferences to understand what is out there in terms of options as we conduct our options analysis for our key projects. And the second part, from my point of view, is probably not well understood uh, outside of Canada is our procurement paradigm, which is really three departments that procure. There's defense who really cares about lethality and the, and the, and the operational uh, requirements. But then you have uh, Procurement Canada who does the competitions for us, and they run, uh, they want to make sure that they, we do a fair and open competition or at very least we are, we are in compliance with all the various regulations that are out there. And then we have Industry Canada, Industry Science and Economic Development Canada that does best value for, for Canadian industry. And the three of us seem to agree on an approach. And from a space point of view, there's some real particular things you need to be cognizant of, classification being one. So one of the efforts I've really led over the last year and a half or so is to really uplift that entire three-legged stool of an enterprise up to the TSSCI level so we can have some really mature uh, discussions about space capability investment that is anchored against threat, first and foremost, and second is cognizant of, of the protection of the information in which we are entrusted by our allies. And so I think that really would encapsulate my view is there's an education piece, there's an exposure piece, and there's an industry engagement piece that I think is key to sort of building a space force developer. And that thus far has been successful. I guess my last comment would be the interchange of people between Mike's team and mine where you have operators who can come into our world and sort of say, that makes zero sense, which you were forced developing. We need to relook at that. I think I found that very healthy. And so I've sent some of my key folks to him, vice versa. found that that's worked out very well. Gentlemen, expanding the aperture a bit, if you were to rack and stack the challenges and opportunities facing space power in the Royal Canadian Air Force, what does it look like? Yeah, the challenges and opportunities, I think, facing space power is the fact that it's it's non-traditional in, in terms of how we are addressing space power. Traditionally, uh, within the land, sea, and air domains, militaries have relied on, on equipment that they own, operate, procure, fight, uh, evolve, modernize, and go on from there. And what we're seeing is an extremely different paradigm for the space domain. As Chris has alluded to earlier, utilize what we have, exploit what we can, you know, uh, borrow what we, uh, what we can, and, and only build what we must. We have have to look at 
how we conduct operations in the space domain differently. There is a heavy weight on being responsible space actors. We have to look at the partnerships and the capabilities that we're bringing to bear, whether or not it's something we want to develop sovereignty from a sovereign perspective, uh, whether or not we are relying on allies for it. Um, and we've made reference earlier to this as well. You know, do we want to work closely with commercial partners? And, and we, we've seen already within the Ukraine conflict and others, um, a heavy reliance on a commercial partnership, uh, bringing capability to bear in support of a, of a security or defense operation. That changes the paradigm significantly. And I think we just have to look at things differently as we go forward. I think the other piece that is a challenge for us is the speed with which the adversary is changing the landscape, uh, which is driving a requirement for all of us, not just in Canada, but in the U.S. and all of our allies, to be extremely agile and responding to that very dynamic threat environment. And I think we probably are going to have to rely greater on commercial enterprises, which seem to have the ability to be able to pivot and change their program quickly, whereas governments uh, aren't necessarily as agile in changing uh, changing course and tack, if you will. I'll turn it over to Chris there because I think he probably has more to offer in that. But I think those, from my perspective, are some of the key challenges. I would completely agree with Mike uh, in terms of we need to be more agile. And one of the things I'm focused on within transformation here is getting out of that traditional program or record approach uh, where we're delivering capability along timeframes of 5, 10, or even 15 or 20 years and leveraging and harnessing that innovative DevSecOps type capability development to really be agile because when we're in the fight and all the systems start going haywire and going down, we're going to have to rely upon that native capability that we have that we, we built within our core construct to be able to be agile, refocus, and reconstitute. So that's one area within uh, transformation here within Space Operations Command, where we're really focused on how do we build out that capability and not be completely reliant upon those programs, which may be late to need uh, in terms of delivery when we're in a contested environment. Yeah, that's a great segue for maybe my response. My view uh, from the force development world is that the processes that we have in place for governance and for approvals of major capital projects do not match the pace at which industry is changing. And so my key challenge, and I'm watching it disrupt projects that I have well advanced right now, is that the technology is changing so fast that our governance structures are just not built to keep up to that. And so we have to change something. If you want to remain relevant and not field and launch obsolescence into space, you really need to change your processes and accept some risk. I think pulling industry in earlier and engaging them with respect to the, allowing them to propose solutions earlier in the acquisition process, uh, I think there's a way to de-risk this. Uh, and bringing your industry up to that TSSCI environment so you can have some conversations with them is key, and that's something we're working very hard on. Great. Thank you so much for that. So building off of that, what I'd like to talk about is what does mission success for Canadian space power look like today? And what would you say that mission success will look like a decade or so in the future? I think mission success for Canadian space power is going to be assured access to the domain in order to guarantee our operators the ability to be able to conduct their roles, their missions, without having to worry about whether or not that's going to be there for them. Uh, to be able to utilize, whether it's a transport layer for communications or PNT or Earth observation intelligence gathering or what have you. I think if we can do that, um, then, you know, we've achieved a larger mission success for uh, for the Canadian forces. From a Canadian space power perspective, I think what we need to do is, is build on um, the foundational pieces we've got at the moment in terms of alliance frameworks, whether that be within Olympic Defender or the combined space operations. We need to continue to engage like-minded nations in order to create a perhaps weightier alliance. I think that's something our adversaries do not have is the benefit of friends. Uh, and that's something that is unique to, uh, to Western democracies and what we're doing within alliance and coalition frameworks um, in that regard. You know, what does the Canadian space power going to look like in 10 years from now? Um, I would suggest it'll probably be a larger organization. We're probably quite modest in size at the moment uh, compared to uh, some other nations, but there is an increased recognition of the importance that space is playing in all of that. We're trying to set ourselves up now uh, to create those foundational points that we'll be able to buy or build on top of that for whatever it is that we're going to be doing in the future. I think it's it's tough to know where we're going to be 10 years from now because I don't know that we could have forecasted 10 years ago that we would be here. And as I mentioned earlier, it is extremely a dynamic environment in which to try and operate. Um, but I, I see the Canadian space enterprise 
in Canadian space power playing a greater and greater role in, in what we do as an organization um, and, uh, and, and advising uh, those other um, you know, joint forces on how to conduct operations. And the sky or space is the limit. Uh, I'll be extremely interested to see where it goes 10 years from now. Yeah, from a force development point of view, for me, it really looks like we have force developed and launched and are operating in orbit a number of key capabilities that allow Canada to stand on its own as a sovereign player in space and contribute meaningfully to the Allies in terms of generation and production of intelligence and contribution, obviously, of capabilities such as surveillance of space and SATCOM that others can use and leverage inside of the Alliance, NATO Five Eyes, and CAN-US. So from my point of view, that's what right looks like to me. What I would like to see is a more entangled discussion with industry where we have more mature relationships uh, with industry to achieve that agility that uh, we just discussed. Uh, I think it also looks like normalizing space force development and space capability in the same way that we see air capability uh, being looked at. You don't buy a fighter jet and operate it and all of a sudden decide not to. And so you don't, you know, you shouldn't launch a, a space domain awareness capability in space and then elect not to replace it. And so look, taking a program view of space uh, as a nation so that once you have achieved a, cap- a level of capability in something, continuing to invest in it into the future uh, to ensure, uh, obviously, the defense of the continent, country, uh, and that of our allies. Now, gentlemen, I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really interesting, and we get a lot of people through the podcast, but, but this one particularly has been really enlightening. So thank you so much for your time today. And, you know, it goes beyond this podcast. We want to thank you big picture in terms of the collaboration and partnership, both on a national level and with the Mitchell Institute specifically. It it means a lot. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the, uh, the Mitchell Institute for the opportunity to talk about what Canada is doing. Our, our work in collaboration with the U.S. Is, is absolutely critical to everything that we're doing in the space domain and an opportunity to be able to uh, to get out and, and talk about that and, and contribute to the global or the larger space-mindedness for both of our nations is, is always a great. So uh, thank you very much. Hey, Doug, I, you know, from my perspective, it's Chris McKenna on the Force Development Portfolio. I, thank you so much for the opportunity here. It's been great to have this discussion with you, and I really appreciate the uh, the advocacy and the opportunity here to talk to uh, to our key allies and to, to partners alike. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's truly a privilege to be embedded within the United States Space Force as a Canadian. And I, I really look forward to the future collaboration going forward uh, with all of our allies to be able to further develop this domain. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Cheers. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to our Space Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.